Mahanaim, a town that is approximately 45 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. When he reorganized, he divided his forces up, and we don't know how many were there, but we know they were mighty men. But he divided his forces up into three different groups, one under Joab, one under Abishai, Joab's brother, and then a third under Ittai the Gittite, the man we met a few weeks ago. David had every intention of going into battle himself, but his men insisted that he not. David's around 60 at the time, but then so were Joab and Abishai and Ittai the Gittite. But his presence on the battlefield would have been good in one way. It would have been motivational. It would have been inspirational. And David was still at this time a warrior. Just because he was 60 doesn't mean he's over the hill. And David Crockett and Jim Bowie were both right at 50 years old when they fought at the Alamo. So he's still a warrior. But the men don't want him to go. They feel like the, the negatives would outweigh the positives of him being there. Primarily, if Absalom and his forces were able to take David out, that would have been such a discouragement to the rest of the men that the battle probably would not have gone as well as it did. So they asked David to lead from the rear in this one. You'll recall there's a little bit of irony there because you'll recall that that's what got David in trouble in the first place when we started this whole narrative, that David stayed home at the time that kings go to battle. But nevertheless, this is not a negative here. David does the right thing by doing what his men want. Now, there's one command that David gives his three, I'm going to call them generals tonight, in the presence of all the people, that may be hyperbole, but at least all the people end up knowing about it, there's one command that he gives them before they go out. And that command is, deal kindly or deal gently with this young man, Absalom, for my sake. Now don't, don't miss that for my sake part. Because David's saying, listen, do me the personal favor. If you have any respect for me at all, this is what I want you to do. I want you to deal kindly with him. This is not a, an idle request on David's part, because I don't know about Ittai the Gittite, but I do know about Abishai and Joab, and they don't show anybody any favors when it comes to taking people out that they feel like have done David wrong or themselves wrong. So this is a serious order. Whether or not David should have given the order, and people debate that, back and forth, whether it's a legitimate order from David's standpoint, whether he should have given it is not really the issue because he gave it. He gave that order, and he's the king when he gives that order. And Abishai and Joab and Ittai the Gittite and everybody else that's going out into battle are under David's authority. So whether or not David should have done it, he did do it, and it's not an immoral order. I know there's a military doctrine that Order should be followed. There's got to be discipline. I understand that totally. But there also is a, an issue within the military. If an order is overtly and expressly immoral or wrong, then the soldier has a, an issue with that with, with regard to following an order that's overtly and just very clearly wrong. Now, I know I wasn't in the military, but I've talked to enough military people about this particular issue. You better be pretty darn sure that you're right if you want to disobey an order and you, want to, you need to know that you're going to have to suffer the consequences for doing so. But my point here with this order, and this, the whole narrative revolves around this order, so that's why I'm taking just a moment with it. My point is that David may or may not have been wise in giving this order. But the order is not immoral. It's not immoral to spare the son. It may not have been wise, but it's not immoral. So they had no reasonable reason 
to rejection. It is also not a suggestion. It's an order. It's a command. With his army now quite large on the other side, Absalom meets David's army in the forest of Ephraim. And when they fight it out, and Absalom had put Amasa, Joab, and Abishai's nephew in charge of his army. Interesting thing about Amasa, he didn't go with his uncle. He stayed with his other cousin. So this is a big family affair. But Amasa leads the Absalom's army. Absalom is with the army, unlike David. In the force of Ephraim, the two forces meet. Absalom's force is arguably much bigger than David's force. Remember, Absalom was going to get people from Dan to Beersheba and put them all together and have this overwhelming force that would engulf David's men. And it wouldn't even be close, they thought. It was going to be a slaughter. And guess what? It wasn't close. It was a slaughter, but not like they thought. David's smaller force wiped out the forces of Absalom. The triumph of the wicked is short, Job says. David's smaller but better force, better organized, better led, and the men were better warriors, that smaller force wiped out Absalom's force. And this is where we pick up the narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. This would have been a relatively comical scene if this was a comedy, but it's not a comedy. It's very serious. In verse 10, when a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, This is a wise man. Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. That's not exactly what was said, but that's this man's interpretation of what was said, and I think that's a pretty good interpretation. Don't kill him. The whole thing about deal kindly with him, that doesn't mean kill him mercifully. That means don't kill him. Protect him. And we see that in verse 12 as compared to the previous order that David gave. In verse 13, otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. That's a pretty wise observation, too. I kill him, and then you're going to protect me when the time comes? I don't think so. You're going to hang me out to dry. You're going to throw me under the bus. It wouldn't matter if you gave me every dime you had. I'm not going to lift a hand against the king's son. Then Joab said, because he's Joab, I will not waste time here with this. So he took three spears in his hands, or perhaps three javelins. The text is not completely specific. It could just mean three sharp objects of some sort. But he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. So Absalom's hanging there, swinging back and forth, and Joab sees it. He says, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to wait around for one of you guys to do it. I'm going to do it myself. If I want something done, I'm going to just do it myself. Now, Absalom doesn't die immediately. And so the ten young men who carried Joab's armor, his personal guard, they have no problem following their boss, and they 
pounced upon Absalom, and they finished him off. The ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around him and struck Absalom and killed him. I don't know if you caught it, but for me it's a bit of an ironic twist that Absalom is done in by one of the sources of his pride. It's pride that got him to where he was in the first place. Pride that got him to where he wanted to rebel against his father. But earlier on, we've seen that Absalom's full head of hair was a source of pride for him. Remember, he cut it once a year. He would let it grow out. He cut it once a year, and it weighed quite a bit. And Absalom is caught up by one of the very things that he was uh, proud of. Back to this unnamed man. The unnamed man is, is exercising wisdom here. In fact, of all the people in this narrative, he's one of the only ones that exercises wisdom. This is one of those difficult lessons tonight because this chapter is full of one bad decision after another. And it's hard to pick out who's the hero in this passage. And I've come to the conclusion there isn't one. If anybody acts wisely consistently, and this is only a consistency of one, it's this young man. Because if he would have killed Absalom, after hearing the king's orders, his own life expectancy would have gone from years to minutes. And Joab would have been nowhere to found to protect him. I guarantee you, Joab would have been nowhere found to protect him. Didn't you go through that when you were a kid from time to time? You'd say, oh, come on, let's go, let's go. Why don't you go up there and do that? Well, why don't you go up there and do that? Because, you know, if they want to push you up there to do it, they're going to be nowhere to be found when the police comes, when somebody's mama comes. You're just going to be standing there holding the bag all by yourself. So this is the one fellow in all this narrative, in my view, that exercises some sort of wisdom. In most of the Davidic narratives, it's pretty clear. You have everybody's making a bad decision, and then, or there's a group of people making a bad decision, and then the one that will make a good decision. In this one, it's so intertwined with all negative decisions. When we get all the way to the end of it, we're going to see that these bad decisions cause bad outcomes. And that's the lesson we learned from this chapter. You don't get away with these bad decisions. And the bad decisions don't just start here. Remember, this is getting close to the end of David's 10-year discipline period. The first bad decision that was made that caused a lot of the, the repercussions that, that reverberated all the way to chapter 18 started in chapter 11 when David took the second look. And when he looked the second time, lust took over in his heart. And then that lust led to a lot of bad things, led to murder and then adultery and conspiracy. And that's why we are where we are in chapter 18. So the bad decisions don't just start here. Now, I've got to say, for the most part, for the last many chapters, David's made pretty much good decisions. But here he shows a bit of a weakness. David was never a great father. He was a great king. He was a great leader. Even though he wasn't a great father, he was a great psalmist. He was not just a political and military leader of Israel. He was a spiritual leader of Israel. But most everybody's got a blind spot. They have a weak spot. And for David, it was his family. And David never really could seem to get it right. And he doesn't get it right here either. The request that he gives, while not immoral, was probably not wise either. And we'll see a little bit more about that in just a moment. This Joab fellow that we've been talking about throughout the Davidic narrative was an enigmatic fellow, difficult fellow to understand, in other words. He's David's nephew, although David and Joab are probably about the same age. Sometimes in these narratives, Joab appears as a dedicated loyalist, almost heroic. 
if you recall some of the battles that took place in the past, Joab was the first one up the hill. He's the first one into the city. Sometimes he appears almost heroic, and at other times he seems to be an impulsive man with a hot temper bent on making things right, even if he has to do a right thing in a wrong way. And be careful with people like that. Be careful with people that don't care about the means of accomplishing something. They only care about the ends. The whole idea of the, the ends justifies the means is an atheistic Marxist philosophy. It's not a Christian philosophy. Joab was one of these fellows. We might even call him pragmatic. If it got the job done, who cares how I did it? But Joab doesn't come, a, come out very well in this chapter except for one thing. It's interesting. He has, a, he has one moment in this chapter. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Joab, in this case, David's nephew, disobeyed a clear directive of the king. And whether or not it was a wise directive, that may be something we could talk about 3,000 years later, but it wasn't something for Joab to decide. Now, I'm not, I'm not one who believes in blindly following orders. I just have never been that way. But it wasn't immoral. So Joab's deciding whether it was wise, and Joab decides, well, it's, it's not a wise order. I'm not going to follow it. If it was immoral, then that would have been another story. But it's a big stretch, real big stretch, for an individual to argue that it was immoral to spare Absalom. Again, maybe not wise, but there's no moral factor with it. Joab then blows the trumpet, says the victory is there. We've got the leader of the other army. We've got the leader of the rebellion. And they take Absalom's body and they throw it into a pit. And they cover that pit with stones. This was apparently Joab's way of identifying Absalom as being someone who was infamous, not just famous. Someone who was a bad guy. Because that's the burial. That was the customary burial in Israel for someone who was infamous. The Jews were very careful with their burials. We'll see that even this weekend with the resurrection narratives of Jesus. Very careful. They buried on the same day, the same day that the person died. This, though, is not a normal Jewish burial. They throw him to a pit and cover him with stones. So the, the place where he's buried is going to be identified, but this is a dishonorable burial. Verse 18 of this chapter relates that Absalom had already plans for his own burial. Not because he was a wise person that did a lot of planning, not because he liked to think ahead, because he was really full of himself. So in his own pride, he had already raised these big pillars as to where he would be buried some way. He didn't have a child to do it for him, so he was going to do it himself. Joab's making a point by the way he buries him. There will be no honor for Absalom. Joab is a person that might would have done well to heed the maxim, the order from our Lord that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Leave room, as Paul put it, for the vengeance of God. Joab didn't leave any room for God's vengeance. He took it all upon himself, and this is going to be his downfall. The remainder of this chapter tells the sad story of David receiving the news of Absalom's death. Uh, Ahimaaz 
one of the messengers who had been relaying information. Remember, Jonathan and Ahimaaz had been the ones relaying information to David when he's out in the desert. He asked if he can be the one to inform David about the great victory. It's almost as if Ahimaaz is a little bit naive. Perhaps Ahimaaz is not familiar with how David tends to take bad news, especially how he treats the messengers that bring bad news to him. You recall the messenger that brought him the news that Saul had been killed and seemed to be kind of happy and proud of the fact that Saul had been killed. Remember what David did to him because the man said that he was actually the one that, that killed Saul. So David had him killed. Who are you to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed? Joab, on the other hand, knows full well how David responds to bad news. So he stops Ahimaaz and says, listen, maybe it's not the best thing for you to be the one to take the news to David. So they, they get this Cushite, who's from North Africa, perhaps Ethiopia, maybe, maybe Sudan. They recruit somebody, at least in the flow of this narrative, is considered to be maybe a less, little less important than Ahimaaz would have been, at least in their eyes. And they said, let's send him to David with the information. Well, the band goes. It's got to be quite a few miles from where Mahanaim is to where the forest of Ephraim was. So this is not a sprint. This is more like a marathon that these men would be running. After the Cushite leaves, Ahimaaz insists on going himself. Please let me go. Please let me go. And so you can just see Joab throwing his hands up in the air and say, okay, go. Go. He's got to figure, though, the Cushite's got a pretty good lead on him. Ahimaaz will never be able to catch him. We're going to see later that Ahimaaz is a pretty good athlete, and he's going to catch and pass him. Read along with me verses 24 through 27 of this chapter. Now David was sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was running by himself. And the watchman called and told the king. And the king said, if he's by himself, there's good news in his mouth. Then he came nearer and nearer. How David knows that, we don't know. I think David's just guessing here. This is wishful thinking on David's part. Verse 26, then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, this one is also bringing good news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, this is a good man and comes with good news. David's really hoping for something good here. Ahimaaz's report is given to us in verses 28 and 30. And then the Cushite's report is given in verses 31 through 32. And Ahimaaz called and said to the king, all is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground, and he said, Blessed is the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. It's real debatable whether Ahimaaz is telling the truth here or whether he's just punting. I suspect he's telling the truth. Ahimaaz seems to be a, a reasonable person. Then the king said, in other words, he doesn't know. Then the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Now comes the report from the Cushite. And, the Cush, and behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said, let my lord the king receive good news. For the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. So far, that's the same report. Then the king said to the Cushite, 
Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. This Cushite didn't know the politics behind all this. He didn't have, he didn't have the sense to say, I don't know either. Or I'm so sorry to have to report this to you, but Absalom, your son, has been killed. There's no, there's no delicacy here. David's reaction to this news is predictable. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But you know, David, when he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, didn't speak to him for months and months and months. Wouldn't even see him. Then when he saw him, he wouldn't really speak to him too much after that. He had shunned him the whole time. And now that he's dead, the one thing he wants to do is speak to his son. I think David is probably being honest here. I think he probably wanted a relationship with Absalom, but he was just too darn stubborn, and he was a poor father. And he didn't realize that sometimes he just needs to suck it up and bring and put his arms around the boy and say, I know you did a really terrible thing, but I love you anyway, and I'm still your dad, and you're still my son. Let's sit down and work our way through this. But David just couldn't do it. That wasn't his strength. Now, I'm not excusing David. I love David. That's not his strength. He had other strengths that were phenomenal that will never come, at least I'll say, I'll never come close to matching what he did in, in many areas of his life. But this was a big mistake. It's my view that David's being honest here. He has such regret as to how the whole thing turned out, and he probably has had this going through his mind over and over again. How could I have done this differently? Well, perhaps I could have spent a little bit more time with him when he was younger. Maybe I could have spent a little bit more time with him when he came back to Jerusalem. Maybe I could have forgiven him and let him know that I had forgiven. Maybe just communicating with the boy would have been a positive thing. But David didn't do it, and now it's too late, and he can't do it. Anybody got friends like that? Family, family members like that? That you've been at odds with for quite some time? Listen, don't wait. Until you're saying, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. I wish it was me instead of you. Don't wait until that moment comes. Pick up the phone and call them. And you may say, well, they hadn't called me in a long time. The phone lines work both ways. One act of stubbornness doesn't justify another act of stubbornness. If David could do it all over again, I'm sure he would have handled Absalom differently. I think this is legitimate. In terms of his response, he's responding like any father would respond. But he's also responding like someone who has tremendous regrets. And his head is just spinning with regard to this. Tremendous regrets. Now, granted, granted, Absalom would have needed to do some repenting as well. Because Absalom had murdered Amnon, David's other son. So it's, it's not as though David would have been able to take him back unconditionally. God's the one that can do that. But, you know, God actually has a condition too, doesn't he? In order to receive the initial forgiveness of sins, we've got to exercise faith. In order to receive subsequent forgiveness of sins, as Christians, we need to confess that sin to God. And then if we want to stay in fellowship, we've got to repent of it. But David didn't give him a shot. And David is extremely regretful here. You can just feel the passion. In fact, others have felt the passion here. Different literary writers throughout the course of history have borrowed these lines. 
and borrowed the passion from these lines and inserted into the, in these lines into their films and into their plays. This sets up, David's response here sets up an extremely uncomfortable moment right here. Joab has already done something wrong. But now David is is insulting by the way he's going to handle this. He's insulting the men that went out and fought for him. So this is where I say it's kind of all interwoven with the good and the bad here. It's hard to pull them all apart and, and distinguish. But Joab's going to have to straighten King David out. Ironic, isn't it? Because Joab's the one that killed Absalom in the first place, but now he's going to have to straighten King David out. In verse 1 of chapter 19, Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it and said, The king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in a battle. What should have been a great victory. These are people that risked their life for David. They went out and won. Now, the other side lost 20,000 men. We don't know how large David's force was, and the text doesn't tell us how many men he lost. But it would have been quite unusual to have a battle where 20,000 people were killed on one side and nobody's killed on the other side. So I'm going to have to assume that at least some of David's men died as well. Some of David's men who had families died as well, protecting David. They were loyalists to him, and they died. They died, or they were injured, or they risked their lives. And instead of being greeted by the king when he comes back, when they all come back into the city and thanked for their service, the king is so upset that his own son, who was leading the rebellion against him, has been killed. He's not thinking a thing about his own men. This is an insult to the people that risked their life for him. The text doesn't comment on it. Sometimes narrative is that way, biblical narrative. It doesn't say whether this is right or wrong, whether it's good or bad. We're left to interpret it. But I think Joab is going to do the right thing here. In verse 4, David and the king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life. And the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, today then you would have been pleased. Now that's pretty gutsy, especially since you're the one that killed Absalom against the king's order. This is one of those things where Joab probably is right in straightening out David. But it's really a gutsy move. It doesn't stop there. Look at verse 7. Now, therefore, arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass this night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. It almost takes a relative to talk to you that way. But again, he's being pretty bold. He's just disobeyed the king's order. But he's right in this sense. You see what I mean about this being a confusing chapter and an awkward moment. David is not concerned at this point with the loyalists who have risked their lives for him. Or for those who have 
lost loved ones in the battle? What about the families that stayed at home, the mothers and the fathers or the wives and the children of the ones that may not have come home? Again, if there are 20,000 casualties on one side, you've got to assume that there were some casualties on David's side. If you hadn't read ahead and you knew David from all the previous narratives, what might you think David would have done at this point? I would have thought he might have gone after Joab. Said, you little rotten nephew of mine, you little so-and-so, I told you not to kill that boy. Gird up your loins, put on your sword, we're going out here, we'll settle this. David and Goliath style. But he doesn't do that. David takes his advice. You know what? Even people who are critical of you, even people who point out your weaknesses, can be doing you a favor. Most of us don't like that. I don't particularly care for it. I don't know anybody that does. But it can be a positive if you can be objective enough to listen to good advice. And this was As odd as the whole story is, this was good advice. He needed to take care of his men. Joab enjoyed a certain amount of loyalty with this army himself. He's been with them for decades. He's been the leader of this army off and on for decades. And what Joab's really telling him here, you don't handle this thing right, Uncle David. I'm taking this army away. I know this army. I'm taking them away. You thought you had problems with Absalom? That's the underlying threat here. You thought you had problems with Absalom? You ain't seen anything yet because we've stuck with you. There's going to be nobody sticking with you now unless you get out here and show some respect to these men. So David does it. He arose and sat in the gate, and they told the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled each to his own tent. The Israel there is a reference to Absalom's men. They all had fled and gone back home. In the next study that we engage in, in the Davidic narrative, we're going to see David has to to do some political fence mending because a great deal of the kingdom has rebelled against him. So we're going to save that for next time. But he does the right thing when he goes out and honors the people that have stuck with him and that were loyal to him and that risked their lives for him. But there is this nagging thing. Why doesn't David do something about this when it comes to Joab? Why doesn't David pull Joab out and have him executed? If it wasn't his nephew, you'd you'd probably think that he might have. I can see three possibilities. Perhaps there are more. These are just three that I've identified. The first possibility is that he was afraid of Joab. And that's certainly possible. Joab had been with David for so long that Joab knew where the bodies were buried, so to speak. He had a lot of information on David. In fact, you'll recall that it was Joab that David sent to kill Uriah the Hittite that started this whole thing in the first place, or to have him killed, to put him in a position where he would certainly be killed. So he may have felt pressured into letting Joab off the hook. Again, as I said a moment ago, Joab was probably very popular with his men. It appears as though he was. And so David probably had to realize he wasn't in as strong a position as he might have thought he was in. Perhaps he needed to exercise a little prudence, a little wisdom, a little patience, and back up and survey the landscape 
and see exactly what position he's in before he rashly has Joab executed and walks out of his place over the gate. He realizes he's got six or seven hundred real angry men about to take him on too. So the first possibility as to why he didn't execute Joab is that in some way he was afraid of Joab. The second possibility is that he knew that the order was inappropriate. And that was for only him only him to decide. It's his call. Again, a moment ago, I said it's not an immoral order to spare the leader of the other army. It's done all the time. In fact, militarily, it's done more often than it's not done. You spare the president of the other country or you spare the leading generals unless they've committed war crimes like the Nazis in World War II. Again, it's possible... Although kings in the ancient Near East weren't known for allowing subordinates to disobey orders of this magnitude and get away with it. So of the three, I think this is probably the least likely, although it is a possibility. And the third one is that he's not going to punish Joab now. He'll punish him later. And this certainly seems to be one of the things that's happening Shortly after this episode, when David, as I mentioned a moment ago, is going to have to heal these political fences, David is going to do something that is a slap in Joab's face in terms of the the political kind of idea. He's going to take Amasa, who was the leader of the army for Absalom, who's also one of his nephews. Remember, they're all part of the family. He's going to take the one who helped Absalom lead the rebellion, and he's going to put him in charge of his armies in place of Joab. Okay, you know Joab, so you know what's fixing to happen to Mesa. But we'll say that for a couple of weeks when I get back from, from India, but that will at least keep you coming back if you like that kind of narrative. But that's not all. I'd like for you to turn as we finish our time up tonight to 1 Kings chapter 2. This is David on his deathbed. And David is talking to his younger son, Solomon. Now, Solomon's not a little boy here, but he's certainly quite a bit younger than all the rest of David's sons. This almost reads like a Mario Puzo Godfather novel screenplay. If you've read this, I don't doubt. I may be stretching because I never talked to Mario Puzo or Francis Ford Coppola, although I think Puzo might be dead now. I'm not sure. But I would love to have, the, have had the opportunity to talk to them and see, did you get some of the revenge scenes that Michael Corleone carried out from this chapter. I wouldn't doubt it if they had said that they did. Let's look at some of David's parting advice to his young son Solomon as David lay on his deathbed. Skip down to verse 5 for the pertinent section. Now you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, son of Ner, and to Amasa, son of Jether, whom he killed, he also shed the blood of war in peace. And he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on his sandals of his feet. This is David's evaluation on his deathbed of Joab. David is 70 at the time he makes this pronouncement. He said Joab's probably about the same age. Isn't it, isn't it Tragic almost that the two things that you're remembered for are two deaths like that. The inappropriateness. David has no problem with Joab killing in war. 
but he's got a big problem with them killing Abner and Amasa, both of whom, by the way, were people who were put in positions of authority that Joab thought he should have. So in verse 6, So act in accordance with your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. Have him killed. That's exactly what Solomon will do upon David's death. This is an interesting thing. David wins the battle, but loses a son. If we're counting, this is the third son that he's lost since the whole Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite incident. He's been going through installments of discipline. And this is son number three. Remember the infant son died. And then Absalom killed Amnon after Amnon raped Tamar. And now Joab killed Absalom. So he's lost three sons throughout this disciplinary process. There was never going to be an emotionally acceptable victory for David in this battle. Going into it, there couldn't be. Either he was going to lose, probably be killed himself, or if he's going to win, Absalom's got to be defeated, and he's fighting his own son. So there's never going to be an acceptable emotional victory for David because he's going up against his son, but ultimately there's something bigger going on, and that is God's behind it. This is part of David's discipline. Now, this appears to me to be the final of the installments. There are some other negative things that happen with David, but I think this is it in terms of the installments of the discipline that come because of the Bathsheba affair. Now, if you've read through this text, nowhere does it say, well, this is the first installment and this is the second one. We have to work our way through the text and see that they're all related. But this is ultimately part of David's discipline, so there is not going to be an acceptable emotional outcome. David here, no matter what. You know, we talk about win-win situations and win-win-win situations. This is a loss, really, no matter how it turns out for David. If he wins, he still loses. And if he loses, he loses. That's the first thing that makes this an interesting section. There is no acceptable emotional outcome for David here because this is discipline. The second thing that we see is that Joab refuses to follow a direct order from David. He's wrong. He is as wrong as he can be in refusing to follow that order. But when he rebukes David for David's insulting behavior toward those who had risked their life for David, it's difficult to make a case that he's wrong in doing that, which is another way of saying I think he was right. So he's wrong to have killed Absalom, but he's right to have rebuked David. The right Joab does, though, doesn't make up for the wrong, and eventually he's going to pay dearly for it. Sometimes we have negative examples on how to do things or how we mess things up with our bad decisions. I think chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19 is just that genre. It's a piece of narrative material that shows us what happens when we start making really bad decisions. Because the way we are as fallen human beings, and this is not an excuse, I'm just trying to explain it. The way we are as fallen human beings, we tend to want to push the boundaries that God gives us. We want to get right up to the edge of it and see just how far we can go. Like a, like a little child. You know, 
hang something over the side of the table. So don't drop that. Don't drop it. So drop it. Okay. They've got to learn, right? Well, this is what God's doing. We, David pushed it. Joab pushes it. And all the time we push it, we think, you know what? If I push it just one more inch, I think I'd be happy over there. I'm not happy right here, but one more inch over that direction, I'm going to be happy then. And God says, no, you're going to make a mess of it. When are we going to learn to do it God's way? And as David is welcoming the men that came back and saved him from the revolution, from the rebellion of his son Absalom, I have to think part of that's what's going through David's mind right now. You know what? This is all traced to a really, really bad decision that I made. And then other decisions that were made compounding the bad decision. And if David had to do it all over again, I guarantee you, he would have said, I'll never do that. I would have never done it had I known the consequences that it would bring. So what it should have been, a great victory and a great celebration, was dampened by bad decisions all the way around. Because you know what? Bad decisions do tend to take the joy.